0: Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Wow. I don't know about you, but there are days when I have to sing that in faith. My soul is not so well and struggling with circumstances. Remain standing for just a second, if you would, please. We want to get the text today. I just want to say welcome. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory Church. It is a pleasure and honor To be with you this morning, I'm bringing the seventh installment in this series called Staycation that Pastor Haley did an amazing job coming up with. And uh, this morning, the title of the message is called Set Fire to My Apathy. Say that with me, Set Fire to My Apathy. All right, our text is found, the series text is from 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. I'd like you to read it out loud with me, please, if you would. Here we go. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, and training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. And then then the message text that I'd like to bring today for today's installment, Set a Fire to My Apathy, is found in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Read that out loud with me, please, if you would, too. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Stop right there. Those five words, really the three prior to them, so about eight words there, are the real heart of what I want to bring this morning. So let's start again and read. Here we go. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the Master, cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians be inventive in hospitality. Let's pray. Father... I just come before you this morning and I'm reminded of the words of the old song that I sang growing up. It's, it said, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. Jesus, keep me from all harm. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. God, I ask you for that today. I'm weak. My emotions are, are bubbling just below the surface And I just ask you today for the clarity and the precision that the Holy Spirit brings. Be in my words. Be in our ears. Be in my mouth. Be in our hearts. Give us understanding and insight, Lord, so that we can see and perceive and understand. We desire, Lord, to be the people that you have called us to be. We know that apart from you we're nothing. But God, we thank you that with you, we can do all things because you strengthen us. We'll be careful to give you the praise and all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. All of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning. As I was saying, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory. We welcome you today to Victory Church. Some great churches in our area, Mary West Memphis. And we're thrilled and honored that you've come to worship the Lord with us today, especially in this hot July month, um, we, matter of fact, they've rigged it up, so I've got a little fan up here, I, somebody, hallelujah, this is, this is, I'm going to preach right here, the whole service, or stay right here in this spot, <laughs> uh, I, I was thinking, I, 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 our plans are finished, and the, the banks got their stuff going on, and the appraiser is in his process, and so we're excited, but I think I'm, I'm going to amend, I think we're going to add a misting section, like they have at the Redbird Stadium, <laughs> I'm just it is an idea, I'm telling you. Maybe on the platform. <laughs> um, I um, am grateful for this amazing team that we have here in so many areas, folks who serve out of pure hearts and the desire to advance the kingdom of God, uh, and on all of our teams. And I'm I'm really grateful for those that I worked the closest with, Pastor Haley, Pastor Jeremy, um, in helping me and this shared series to be able to accomplish some things that I want to be able to do and hit the ground running in the fall. I've already been studying ahead for a series that I'll be doing in October and November on the book of Galatians. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when justification by faith comes to front and center. Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door. So we'll be preaching through the book of Galatians. I'm excited about that. Doing a series in August called Fulfilled on the calling and the destiny on each of our lives. September, we've got the messages ready but don't know what we're going to call it yet in terms of the series. So we've got a lot of stuff that's been cooking. I've been involved really just trying to get my house manageable so that I could run it by myself. Um, bless Dawn's heart. I mean, she just, it was a truly gifted, smart, so much smarter than, than I Person to be able to handle. I don't. I don't know how she knew what we had in the cabinets and in the freezer and in the refrigerator, because it was just packed. And uh, I, I, I. can't think that way. I'm, I'm. I operate differently. And so yesterday, my project was to. Un, was to completely empty the. The bottom freezer in my kitchen and the deep freeze back in the laundry room. Totally empty it out, and then meat on the top or chicken on the top. I, I, that's my big shelf because I'm a preacher and preachers eat chicken. Somebody said, the chicken is the gospel bird. I remember saying as a child, I love chicken. They said, you must be called the ministry because you're going to eat a lot of it when you preach. <laughs> and then meat on the next one and poultry. And, and then, like, yes, I have a dessert shelf. And then um, veggies, you know, the bottom bins on my veggies. So now I can look at it and know what I have. And so I've been doing my whole house like that. Garage got empty, cleaned out, got two vehicles in it. And I enjoyed that for a while, was proud of it in the good sense of the word, of just taking personal responsibility and having pride in what I'd accomplished. And then I decided it was time to tackle the attic, which needed to be done 20 years ago. And I pulled everything down out of the attic into the garage, and I have thrown away a third of it, and I've given away another third, and I've organized the last third, and it's backpacked away, and I know where it all is, and so, man, I'm just like, this is, this is cool, this is great. So. I know you think I'm probably just breaking my arm trying to pat myself on the back, but this is just survival because I have to, I feel like it it will be, I'm sorry for being disjointed. Um, I sent a text to my family this morning. and said, please pray for me. The emotions are just under the surface, and I want to be able to preach and not be a squall bag every time I get in the pulpit. And so Abby prayed those words. She said, Dad, I'm praying for clarity and precision. I said, man, that's got the Holy Ghost all over it, girl. Come on. Amen. I'm excited. She's been in London for 10 days and recording with several artists. Y'all, it's crazy the thing God's doing in her life. She's flying into Memphis tonight and going to be with me for about 10 days, so I'm excited to be, spend some time with her. Um, where was I? Clarity. Clarity. I'm 56, okay, so just give me some grace. Um, And so just really trying to to get things in order so that I can function. Um, It'll be nine months this week since I lost Dawn and I feel like just in the last couple of weeks that I've begun to breathe. I know that doesn't make sense to some of you, but I have just been literally in a state of shock. Just numb. And I wrote in my prayer journal, I, I, I can't say that I'm in a place of personal revival I'm still functioning from a place of brokenness. And I desperately need you, Lord, to move in my life and help me to find a place of confidence, stability. And so daily, I have, I have made myself, and I just want to just give you a peek into what I've been doing. Um, I, I have become probably addictively A list maker, a to-do list person, and um, for a while I was putting everything on it just to function: shower, shave, and you know, go. Yeah, but you're going to do that every day. But you know, when you're when it takes everything you've got just to get up out of bed, just to open the shutters and look at at the world and say, "I'm going to," I choose joy. And, and staring through it and just sometimes gritting my teeth, not feeling any joy at all, but saying, God, I choose joy. Are you hearing me? I mean, I, I, would, I would have my list, and I sit down Sunday night, and I make my list for the next week on what I'm going to do every day and functions that are here at the church that I've been, been taking care of a little bit on a lesser level since this has happened, and the team has been so amazing just to give me some time to heal. And, I mean, I've just said, like, make your bed. And I would exit off. And I don't know if you, maybe, if you don't understand this, maybe I'm just a nerd or weird or whatever, but there's something that's fulfilling when I can, when I can check off that to-do list and I realize that I've had one that's eight inches long and I've gotten all that done today. Now, I, I thank you, I do not even have to clap. I, I don't, I'm not looking for that kind of uh, approbation or whatever. But I, I finally got to a place where I knew I was in a routine and I make my bed as soon as I get up out of it so I won't get back into it. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Because sometimes I get up and I go to the mirror and I brush my teeth and I look at it and I go, oh my goodness. And I want to just crawl back and cover my head up with the covers, you know. And uh, so they're just things that I've been doing just to make myself stay in a routine. And those of you who've been through shock and grief and all that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My children have both been seeing Christian counselors drew in Fort Worth and Abby in New York City. And a, and literally, I mean it was it was crazy cuz my my prayer I've cried out to God and said, God, please don't let this mess up my kids. And they both took a turn about a week apart about a month ago. And when they did, it lifted this huge weight and burden off of me so that I could breathe a little bit cuz that's just been my daily, I mean moment by moment just begging God and and, and probably shouldn't say it this way, it's, it's a little crass, but I've prayed, God, please don't let this screw them up, you know, just, is has been my, my cry to God. And seeing them take a turn and beginning to arrive at some emotional health again has has helped me. And I know that I've not done this uh, apart from the prayers of the people of God and the presence of the Lord, and because there's some days I can't say it is well with my soul. But I still can say it in faith, because... I sing the rest of that song. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you. And I keep my eyes on the Lord. I've made myself stay in the Word even when there are days that I don't even have a taste for it. I've read through the Bible every year since I was 18 and I feel like it's, it's the tool in my toolbox. I have to keep myself sharp in the word and there are days that I'm just plowing through, just gritting my teeth. How many of you ever, you, you, you get to a place where food just doesn't even taste good to you, just can't, just can't seem like, you know what I'm talking about? Well, sometimes the word is like that and you, I battle through it and I'm going, God, I don't have anywhere else to turn. I have to look to you. I have to help you. And God has dropped little morsels along the way and he's just dropped a fresh fire and he's, 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 he's wrapped his arms of love and mercy and goodness around me and his grace and his mercy. I'm so thankful for that and uh, I, like I said in my own journal I wrote, I'm, I'm not in a place of personal revival, I'm still functioning in a place of, of personal brokenness but in that Lord I want to meet you in a new place and a new way and so I asked them this week, I said I want you to sing Set a Fire because God's put something on my heart. Um, Haley chose all these topics and when she listed them I said I want apathy because that's, that's the edge in my life that's what I'm battling I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling through this now when you read this passage in Romans don't quit in hard times pray all the harder let me tell you what it says in the keep yourselves fueled a flame, the New Living Translation says it this way never be lazy but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically Everybody say enthusiastically. Now, I believe that language is one of the best indicators of the state, of the condition of our culture, because words come and go. They're words that no longer have usage, and they sort of get packed up and put away in the attic. How many of you heard your parents, maybe probably your grandparents, when you were dressed up, they would just say, man, what are you so gussied up about? (laughs) Have you heard that? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's not a teenager in here that would use that term, in 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 good company. They just well, what what is gussied up? Uh, I love um, I love the movie Sweet Home Alabama, and I remember when the mayor from New York comes and visits Alabama, and the lady said, "Ooh, if I'd have known you was coming, I'd have put on the dog." <laughs> and the mayor the mayor says, "Okay," <laughs> you know, it's just one of those little southern colloquialisms that unless you are from here and you understand it, you don't understand it. You think we're crazy, which most of the world probably does anyhow. Uh, But I I googled this week just to see how language had changed in 2016 and there were like three pages, three internet pages of words that had been added to Oxford's Oxford English Dictionary. For example, here are a couple. How many of you ever heard the word Brexit? Have you heard Brexit on the news? Does anybody know what Brexit is? Brexit is the process of Great Britain exiting from the European Union. Everybody say Brexit. Okay, that's a little political, so maybe you're not familiar. How about hacker-proof? How many of you have heard of the word hacker-proof? If something is hacker-proof, that's come to us since the invention of what? Internet, and before the Internet, the invention of what? Computers, okay? So the whole idea is that you want to create a firewall, new term that we've created, around your information, your data, so that it is hacker proof. Somebody can't break through and steal your information. So our language is changing all the time. This is the reason I use different translations of scripture. Somebody says, oh, you know, I just think the only inspired version, first of all, no versions are inspired. It's the word itself that is inspired. And none of us have seen it in its original form. And if you even had a true 1611 version of the King James, you couldn't read it because the language has drastically changed so much. It's a totally different language. And we don't speak Elizabethan English anymore. We don't go around talking like that. Somebody said, what's the best translation? Well, the best one is the one you can understand. And you understand it and you obey it and act on it and, and, and don't worry about it from there. Just pray and trust God and Sometimes you grow past one, you grow out of one, and you need something that's got a little bit more substance to it. It says it says it a little different way. Um, when I preach, I quote from the King James and sometimes the NIV, and we'll read from the message and from the NLT all the time, just trying to make things clear for people. My uh, friend, Dr. Matt Garner, was one of our original elders in our church way back when we first started Victory. It was called Victory Fellowship at the time. And Matt had graduated medical school, he was in his residency and he was working in the emergency room at the med. A homeless person came in and he, um, Matt was trying to get some family history on the person so he would know how to treat him and he said, you know, have there been any any diseases in your family? And the person was probably a little bit drunk and wasn't speaking too intelligible, he'd been hurt. And there were a lot of things going on when they ran some tests on him. And Matt was trying to get a family history. And he said, is there, are there any diseases in your family? And he said, yeah, my, the smiling mighty Jesus. And, and Matt said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. He said, the smiling mighty Jesus. And, and Matt said, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand. This is a true story. And, and, and Matt said, I'm sorry, would you say that for me one more time? He said, smiling mighty Jesus. And Matt said, well, what are the symptoms to that? And so the the gentleman started telling the person what the symptoms were. And and Matt said, oh, spinal meningitis. (laughs) The point of that story is that what I say and what you hear can very possibly be two different things. Now, those of you who have children know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe if you're married, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Don used to tell me that I had selective hearing, and I selected not to hear most of the time. (laughs) It's a husband thing, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry, honey, I did not hear you. (laughs) Um, The little Sunday school teacher was teaching one day, and um, she was in the book of Genesis, and she was teaching the children, the little preschoolers about Lot fleeing as the judgment of God comes on Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot and his wife fled and the Bible says, Lot's wife looked back and the teacher's teaching the little children. And she says, Lot's wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. And little Johnny raised his hand he's just so excited. He said, oh teacher, 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 that's nothing. Last week my mama looked back and she turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> turned into a pillar of salt. Turned into a telephone pole. the same words. But the first turned into and the little turned into the little boy herd were not the same. That's why we have to pay attention to words. That's why when we communicate, we take time to get on the same page and we have a point of reference and we want to be clear and precise, as Abby prayed. She said, Dad, I'm praying for clarity and for precision. So as as, as we look at this, the NLT says, serve the Lord enthusiastically. Everybody say enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is one of those words that hasn't just always been. Words haven't always been around. Our language morphs, it evolves, it changes. Enthusiasm came on the scene in the American colonies in about 1739, 40, 41, 42. It was the time of what was called the First Great Awakening. It was the evangelical revivals that happened in the 13 colonies, the American colonies, through the ministries of... Jonathan Edwards, who was the first president of Princeton University, he was a Congregationalist minister. John Wesley, who was the founder of modern-day Methodism, preaching holiness and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. George Whitfield, an evangelist from Britain, from England, came over, preached in the colonies, Benjamin Franklin was a personal friend of his, very fascinated and taken with Whitfield, just almost kind of a bromance, if we can use that kind of a term these days. He printed the flyers for him, and, and, and um, Benjamin Franklin, who was not a professing Christian, at, he was a deist at best, uh, was so fascinated when, when Whitfield came to Philadelphia and preached that Franklin actually marked off the crowd in terms of steps, measuring the square footage of the, of the square that George Whitfield was preaching in, in a little small four-by-four four stand that he would get up into. He was bigger than I am. He was six foot six and about 375 pounds, 350 to 375. Had this massive operatic basso bufundo voice that could literally be heard with a crowd of 30,000 people and y'all this was way before microphones and amplification and any kind of technological advances that gives a person the ability to project the voice over a crowd. Franklin was mesmerized. He, He wouldn't quite call it a miracle but he was fascinated that when Whitfield stood up and preached to that crowd and they were they were convicted by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God began to move on them the word enthusiasm was born, theos to be infused with God. Enthusiastic means you have been possessed by and overtaken by the presence of the Holy Spirit. theos enthused. Now we describe enthusiasms like it's something of interest. My enthusiasm may be baseball, yours may be gardening. And that's how the language is morphed. The original idea of enthusiasm was birthed in a revival that historians credit. Those that are not even Christian historians will tell you that that, that, that the buzz that was happening in the 13 American colonies was due to the lightning, passionate, powerful preaching that was going on in every village and hamlet with a church at the center of the town. Many times the pastor, the preacher being the most educated person in town, corresponding with those back in England and reading news from what's happening. And there was revival that was poured out and they preached the gospel. The gospel in the First Great Awakening was that freedom comes only through Jesus Christ. Now isn't that interesting that the message of the First Great Awakening was about freedom and freedom that is only in Christ. And historians that are not even Christian will credit, will tell you, and they've written that it was due to the passionate preaching of all of those uh, revivalist preachers from the the First Great Awakening, 1739 through 41, 43, that literally set a blaze that began to burn through the colonies that motivated the hearts of the American militiamen to stand against the tyranny of King George III in the American Revolution. Now don't tell me the gospel doesn't have power to transform a culture and a society. And so in that revival, enthusiasm was born. The word had never been heard of. It got coined. It's like hacker proof in 2016, except it's 1740. And Presbyterians, which are the frozen chosen, are falling out under the power and swooning and grabbing hold of that post because they're so convicted by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by men that were necessarily talented preachers. Jonathan Edwards, probably the most brilliant mind that, is, that has been in terms of a, a true intellectual in the foundation of America, was the most monotonal preacher and read from a set of notes like this. It had to be the Holy Ghost that got a hold of those people because there was nothing. I'm very, um, I, I, I'm very expressive. I, I get loud at times. I'll get quiet. I'll be silent for a moment in order to be able to draw your attention in. Whitfield, I mean, I'm sorry, not Whitfield, but Edwards didn't do any of those things. He just stood and read a manuscript. And I'm going to tell you, for a crowd of people to be so moved they were on their faces weeping because somebody read from a piece of paper, it's got to be the Holy Ghost. That's the truth. So the Spirit of the Lord just whoosh, whooshed through. And enthusiasm was born. And so as we do this, I've got one thing that I I want to communicate to you through this message. Everybody say one thing. Read it with me. Here we go. Until my perspective changes, my situation can't. Read it like you mean it. Until my perspective changes, my situation can't. Tell your neighbor right now. Until your perspective changes, your situation can't. So now that you understand where I'm coming from about words, we want to get on the same page. Everybody say, get on the same page. So let's put up the word apathy. Here we go. pathos. Ah is the Greek article which means not, it's negative. Pathos is the root that populates words like empathy, sympathy, passion, compassion. And so we're thinking about being motivated by a deep sense of emotion and conviction. Passion, pathos is something that should grip the hearts of Christians, we should not burn out, we should keep fueled and aflame. We should not become lazy, but we should serve the Lord enthusiastically, infused with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. But I believe there's something that hangs like a curtain over the Bible Belt, especially over eastern Arkansas. There is a spirit of mediocrity, there is a don't care there's an indifference. When you define or you Google the term and say define apathy, it will say emotionless or lack of care concerning religion or politics. And and, and I think that is so unusual in this day where we have such a polarization, almost a hatred and a demonizing of each side, one against the other. And I want to tell you that, that the pendulum of history swings always from one extreme to the other. We won't stay in this place of polarization. It will come to. What that, what that does, it doesn't draw us together, but it, it finally just makes us get to the point where we're disgusted and we, we're indifferent, we don't care. And we have this massive group of people that are registered voters who don't even go to the polls to vote because they think their vote won't count. And no matter who gets in there, it's not going to make any difference anyway. And so there's just this massive apathy. There's voter apathy. There's, there's apathy in the Christian church. The, the statistics of the Delta since 1990, the census in 1990, 10 years later in 2000, 10 years later in 2010, the census consistently shows that around 20% of the population of Crittenden County have a church membership affiliation. And all of them don't go. And you know, those that go, not all of them are saved. Don't shout me down. And, and there are those out here that are just sort of been strewn on the countryside who've been offended and do know the Lord, but they're sick of church. How many of you been there? Anybody? Come on, I love Jesus, but it's his crew that I can't stand sometimes. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You, you know, come on. You, 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 know, you know, Jesus is wonderful, but it's his friends that you can't stand sometimes. You know, it's like the guy says, man, it's the ministry. I love the ministry, it's the people I hate. Or the teacher that says, I love teaching, it's those stinking students I can't put up with. <laughs> Come on, every profession has something like that. We've all got something we have to overcome, we have to deal with. Until my perspective changes, my situation can't. I do not want to be a pathos. I don't want to be no compassion, no sympathy, no empathy, no passion about anything. Just dead and dull and stale and stagnant. Point number two, the status quo. Book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3, there are seven churches to which the voice of Jesus pens a letter those seven churches are Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum, Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia and then finally number 7 is Laodicea in in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14 write to Laodicea the angel of the church i don't believe that's a winged creature i believe agalos means messenger i believe that in this allegory that we're reading here there is a literal understanding i believe the angel of the church of Laodicea is the guy who's pastoring the church he's the messenger That's what agalas means. This thing was written in code. I mean, it's written in all of this this comparison, simile, a lot of Old Testament kind of imagery in the book of Revelation. He says, write to the angel of the church. He says, God's yes, that's Jesus, the faithful and accurate witness, the first of God's creation says, verse 15. Just follow along with me. You don't have to read out loud. Jesus sends him a letter, and this isn't good news. I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale and you're stagnant. Everybody say apathy. Everybody say indifferent. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. King James says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That sounds a little bit more Shakespearean. A little bit more Elizabethan English. Spew. Vomit. All right? You know, you you get a note and somebody tells you, you make me want to vomit. You know, that's not like, okay, I want to go hang out with that person. How many of you hear what I'm saying? You make me want to vomit. Jesus says, you brag, I'm rich, I've got it made, I need nothing from anyone. Oblivious that in fact, you're a pitiful blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. And in so many ways, this is the condition of the larger church in America. We think we are something. And yet the truth of the matter is, is our righteousness is filthy rags that are threadbare. This is what Jesus says. Here's what I want you to do. Verse 18. Buy your gold from me. Gold that's been through the refiner's fire. Now I don't believe this is a commercial for you to invest in hard currency when the economy tanks. That's not what he's talking about. Gold is the divine nature of God. I believe he's talking about acquiring truth. You pay for it. Get a hold of it. Wrestle with it. Buy gold that's been tried in the fire, through the refiner's fire. Then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me, clothes designed in heaven. Well, I don't know about you, but I, they ain't no, there's not a store at Wolf Chase or at Carriage Crossing that says clothes designed in heaven. So what are we talking about? We're not talking about garments made out of fabric. We're talking about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you following me? See, a bunch of these wooden literalists that think you've got to have a hard wood literal application every time. You can't every time. It's just nonsense. This is not talking about a literal garment. This is talking about putting on the righteousness of Christ. He is the only one who kept every iota, every jot, every tittle of the law of God perfectly and he died to bury your sin with him and he got up out of the grave without it so you would no longer be accused. And you would be righteous. You would be in right standing with God the Father. That's what righteous means. You clothed, you have on a garment of righteousness. A robe of righteousness. You're engarbed with good standing toward God. Our bank, our our, our, bank, our church has, is righteous in the eyes of First Community Bank. We are in good standing. We are in right standing with the bank. How many you know it's good to be in good standing with somebody? Are you following me this morning? Here's what I want you to do, buy your gold, buy your clothes. He says, you've gone around half-naked long enough and buy medicine for your eyes from me so you can see, really see. We're talking about revelation, acquiring the truth, the divine nature of God, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, having God illuminate our thinking so that we can see clearly. I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. And be able to understand... He says, the people I love I call to account, I prod and correct and guide so that. Now this sounds just like the 2 Timothy passage where it shows us truth and exposes our rebellion, trains us. It's what the Word of God does. It's, he says, the people I love I call to account, I prod and I correct them and I guide them so that. Everybody say, so that. See, it's, you don't ever want to respond to what God's doing in your life with a so what. You want to say, okay, this so that. There's a reason for this. So that they'll live at their best. He says, up on your feet then, about face, run after God. Get out of your inactivity, out of your lethargy, out of your apathy, your indifference, your stale and stagnation. And he says, get up and take action. The new living translation says I correct and discipline everyone I love so be diligent and turn from your indifference another word for apathy verse 20 you get anything out of this look at me i stand at the door i knock if i hear if you hear me call and open the door i'll come right in and sit down to supper with you now let me just stop for a second and tell you Every evangelism program that I've ever seen uses this verse to reach out to sinners. And I believe that there's an okay application of that, but if you really want to get technical, this verse is not written to sinners, it's written to the church. It's written to the church at Laodicea. Now what's wrong with this picture? Where is Jesus? He's standing on the door outside. What's He doing? What's He doing? Why is He knocking? Trying to get in. It's like the homeless fellow that was smelly and dirty and didn't have good clothes and didn't have good social skills and he was not accepted by the kind of an uppity church and he's outside crying and he doesn't recognize him, but Jesus walks up alongside him and he says, Don't worry about it, son. I've been trying to get into this place for 50 years and they've never let me in yet either. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jesus on the outside. Look, I'm knocking. I'm trying to get in. What's wrong with this picture? We're not talking about a building. We're talking about a people. A people that are the church that are supposed to be inhabited by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Come on, somebody. Give God some praise. He says, conquerors will sit alongside with me at the head table just as I, having conquered, took the place of honor at the side of my father. That's my gift to the conquerors. It says overcomers in the King James. To him that overcomes. Verse 22, are your ears awake? Listen, listen to the wind words, the spirit blowing through the churches. Are you paying attention? This status quo, as the, as the old preacher said, that's Latin for the mess we're in. We're deceived and we don't even know it. And that's the characteristic of deception is that you don't know it. If you knew it, you wouldn't be Deceived. We brag and we say we're rich and we're increased with goods and have need of nothing. But Jesus says, actually, you're oblivious to the fact that you're blind and you're threadbare and you're hungry and you're homeless. You don't even know it. (coughs) Until my perspective changes, my situation can't. Say it with me. Until my perspective changes, my situation can't. Point number three, and I'm going to wrap this up. But it's just so comfortable. It's just so comfortable where I am. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Soon after the feast came around and Jesus was back in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool. In Hebrew, the pool was called Bethesda. Everybody say Bethesda. Now, Bethesda means house of mercy. So here we are in Jerusalem. There's a pool right there in front of you. Now I've actually been to the real one. It was beautiful. Massive stone steps and down descending into the colonnades around. Look at the description here. So it's in a a place called Bethesda which means House of Mercy with five alcoves. Five in the Bible is the number of grace. Hand of the Lord Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, that's the, the built of the church, the grace message of the gospel. If I, I, if I, if I chased that rabbit, it would help prove it, but I, would, I don't want to take too much time. Just take my word for it. Five in the Bible is the number of grace. Okay, So there, this is like a hospital. Hundreds of sick people, blind, crippled, paralyzed, were in these alcoves. One man, everybody say one man. Now look at this. Don't don't think for a second that you can come to the house of God or be in a place with a bunch of needy people and just sort of get lost in the crowd and Jesus not see you. Hundreds of folks around, everybody has different needs, but yet Jesus looked and saw and found, everybody say, one man. He sees your personal individual situation and your needs. He knows you intimately and intricately. More than you even know yourself. One man had been an invalid there for 38 years. My goodness. That's that's half of a lifetime. He'd been lying there in this place of kind of a hospice, you might say, a hospital. A place to care for all of these folks that are disabled and that are infirm and that are sick and that are diseased. When Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, he said, do you want to get well? Now, I don't know about y'all, but that is a really strange question. All these folk in the hospital, they're in a place gathered that legendarily, matter of fact, you will see this when I say legendarily, this was the, uh, the word had spread that seasonally, God would kind of send revival and an angel would come and would trouble the waters. And evidently the first person that got into the waters after the angel had troubled them would be healed. And so everybody's sitting around waiting. They're anticipating. They're they're longing for something to come and change their circumstances to fix the situation. And Jesus looks at him and says, do you want, say those words, do you want to get well? And we're gonna come back to that in a moment. Do you do you do you really want to get well? Verse 7, he says, The sick man said, Sir, when the water is stirred, I don't have anybody. And you can almost hear the 38 year old resignation, the excuse that had now come to the forefront in his heart. I don't have anybody. And The first few times he saw somebody else get in after the water was stirred and the angel had appeared and they got out healed and whole, you could hear the cry of disappointment. I don't have anybody. And at this point, it's sort of become stale and stagnant in the way he says it. I don't have anybody. And it's become an excuse. It's kind of a blame. It's, you know, you can't blame me for the situation I'm in because my parents messed me up. My mama raised me and it's all her fault. And I don't have anybody to fix my situation. And I am the way I am. And I've always been this way my whole life. Because I don't have anybody. You can hear the blame. You can hear the covered hurt that is now hard. I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody to help me out. There's nobody here that cares anything about me. Nobody visits me. I've been sitting here 38 years by this pool. And by the time I get there, somebody else is already in. And Jesus said, get up. Look at your neighbor and tell him, say, get up, get up, take up your bedroll and start walking. The man was healed on the spot. He picked up his bedroll and he walked off. Praise God for Yeti. <laughs> Y'all gotta search far and wide to find a preacher that'll do this. (laughs) Don't be impressed with the arch, I have a huge investment in this. (laughs) 38 years! I don't know about you, but after I've done everything I have on my to-do list and I get showered at night, I always want to be clean and lay down in a clean bed. Ooh, I just get in there and I just go, praise God for this thread count on these sheets. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Oh, glory, praise. God, this is just so good. Oh, But you know, after about six hours, I've had all I want. And it's not comfortable anymore. But When this is your life and this is where you live and you don't just stay there for a couple of years but two becomes five and five gives way to a decade and a decade becomes two decades and two become three and three are headed for four and it's been 38 years. How many of you know that mat's got your shape to it? The bed looks like you. It's got your impression. Come on. Did, you know, I, didn't, I, I didn't realize that, you, you know, after you've slept in one spot on your mattress, you're supposed to flip it and turn it over. I, I can't even think how you flip and turn. I, just, I get confused trying to think about, okay, which side did that end up on now? Because, you know, you, know, you, gotta, you, you don't want your mattress to get your impression into it, especially when you've got the LBs like I've got. And so this dude's been laying in this position for 38 years, and I, I you know, I can understand you're invalid, and, and you're a, you're a youngster, and you 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 you're disappointed. You don't have any family. Maybe he was an orphan, and you see all these people that are lined all over the place, and once in a while something happens, and the water kind of jiggles, and somebody jumps in, and they jump out shouting hallelujah, and they they're well, and they can walk. I don't know about you, but after a few years of that, I don't care if I couldn't do anything, I'd find a way to kind of just get as close. I tell you what, I might move a couple of inches a year, but certainly by the time I'd been there 10 years, I'd just be getting as close to that pool as I possibly am. Are y'all hearing what I'm telling you this morning? I don't understand. It's just you get to a place where you accept the thing that you struggle with and it takes on the shape your limitation begins to define you. Your struggle, whether it's chemical or it's an addiction or it's alcohol or it's sexual or it's money or it's shopping or it's whatever it is, and it defines you and it wrecks your life and you just lay down in it and just it becomes who you are and just stay there. And so Jesus comes along and he says, do you want, do you want to get well? I I can't even can't even relate to this because I'm telling you, I know, I just know, I just know how I am. I can't, I can't stand it in a place of just being stuck for so long. I think by the 15th year, I'd probably just, before you know it, yeah, I'm I'm waiting. I see the, oh, there the water's troubled. Yeah, and I got my toe in it. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I need to make an appointment with the finance team. I'm asking for a raise after that. <laughs> I'm, fine. I'm fine. I saw this in my mind's eye when I was praying this week. I said, Holy Ghost, if you really want me to do that, you better protect me and help me if I roll my fat backside down those stairs. Jesus said, get up. Look at your neighbor and say, get up. up. Take up your bedroll. And walk your bohunkas on up out of here. And guess what he did? And he took off and started walking. And the Bible says he was healed at that moment. Now what the gospel does for you is what you can't do for yourself. It has the ability, the creative power, the anointing of God to break every yoke of bondage and it will demand that you do what you can't do in faith to put your trust in Him. Well, if He could have gotten up and walked, He would have done it 38 years ago. But Jesus' words said, do you want to get well? And I would ask you this morning, in your circumstances, there's brokenness in this room. Help me, Holy Ghost. Nobody, I can understand what he says. I ain't got anybody. Nobody knows. Thank thank God he's been there with me and he's helped me through dark times. He's helped me battle thoughts myself because I've been apathetic. I don't care. I could not care less. And I've been numb be nine months and a couple of days and I just feel like I've just recently gotten over the shock and have begun to breathe and I've made myself stay in the Word every day when I didn't even feel like it, didn't even want to and I I didn't pretend, I just said God I I don't even want to do this and I'm doing this because I I know that I need to I love you Lord, help me help me light a fire, set the fire God, help me to fan into flame, Holy Spirit you've got to move in my life because I wrote in my journal I'm not in a place of personal revival. I'm still moving from a place of personal brokenness. And God, I desperately need you. I want to be well. I I don't want to stay. I don't want to stay in a place of brokenness where I get calloused and hard and my disappointment turns to disgust. Well, when the water's stirred, I don't have anybody. How many times do we make excuses and blame somebody else? And some of us have been victims. I didn't choose. I looked at my children and I said, I don't understand this because I didn't sow any seeds to reap this crop. And sometimes you just... I was listening to a young artist named Ben Rector last week. There's a song called Fear. And this is not in my notes, but I just put it on Facebook. And the the, the words of the song, the chorus says, you chased me down in Georgia. And I thought that I was done. But something in me wouldn't turn around and run. And he said, I heard the Lord in California. And I remembered who I was. Somebody help me. I have blanked out on what the rest of it is. I heard the Lord in California, and I remembered who I was. And I don't remember the last of it. That was the punchline right there. Forgive me. If you just hear how much God loves you and hear the gospel, and don't forget who you are, remember who you are and what he's called you to be and do. As I prayed this week, I remembered a song. A young poet, prophet in the 1980s wrote, "His name was Keith Green, had a beautiful family, gorgeous children. He was a young young pilot, young minister. God was using him powerfully to write songs to touch that present generation. had a beautiful little blonde, curly-haired little boy named Josiah, and he overloaded his plane. Josiah and the other little boy on the plane with him and because the weight limit in the plane was so great he flew it into the side of the mountain he, he and his children died his wife Melody was left to run the ministry in Texas he wrote so many amazing songs he really just kind of jerked a knot in contemporary Christian music in the 80's he was so God centered he was so worship centered just really touched so many hearts Oh Lord You're
1: beautiful Your face Is all I see And when Your eyes Are on this child Your grace to me. Sing that with me. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I see. Your face is all I see. like this
0: Oh Lord
1: please light the fire make this your prayer That once burn bright Oh Lord, please light the fire in our hearts this morning, oh God.
0: together and give him praise, hallelujah. <laughs> Remain standing right where you are. In his book, The Vision and the Vow, Pete Grigg tells of how a distinguished art critic was studying an exquisite painting by the Italian Renaissance master, Filipino Lippi. He stood in London's National Gallery gazing at the 15th century depiction of Mary holding the infant Jesus on her lap, with Saints Dominic and Jerome kneeling nearby. But the painting troubled him. There could be no doubting Leapy's skill, his use of color or composition, but the proportions of the picture seemed slightly wrong. The hills in the background seemed exaggerated as if they might topple out of the frame at any minute onto the gallery's polished floor. The two kneeling saints looked awkward and uncomfortable. Art critic Robert Cumming was not the first to criticize Leapy's work for its poor perspective, but he may well be the last to do so, because at that moment he had a revelation it suddenly occurred to him that the problem might be his. The painting had never been intended to come anywhere near a gallery. Leapy's painting had been commissioned to hang in a place of prayer. The dignified critic dropped to his knees in the public gallery before the painting. He suddenly saw what generations of art critics had missed. From his new vantage point, Robert Cumming found himself gaining, gazing up at a perfectly proportioned piece. The foreground had moved naturally to the background. While the saints seemed settled, their awkwardness, like the painting itself, had turned to grace. Mary now looked intently and kindly directly at him as he knelt at her feet between saints Dominic and Jerome. It was not the perspective of the painting that had been wrong all these years. It was the perspective of the people looking at it. Robert Cumming on bended knee found a beauty that Robert Cumming, the proud art critic, could not. The painting only came alive to those on their knees in prayer. The right perspective is the position of worship. Bow your hearts with me for a word of prayer.